The following is a hoop ball presentation. Welcome to the Fantasy NBA Today podcast. It's Friday of week three in our fantasy basketball offseason. We have concluded, or we're shortly going to be concluding another one. Finishing up our first week of June. I'm slashing another line into the, call it the prison wall here, but it's actually just my home office, which is about a one, two, three, four, maybe four and a half feet by about, I don't know, what what is this? How tall am I if I stretch my arm across? Probably about four by five foot corner of my bedroom. That's where the magic happens. <laughs> oh boy, and yet here you guys are. Loyal listeners, the best of the best of the best. Despite the fact that your host is a bona fide idiot. And... I'm Dan Bespris. I'm both of those things. I'm idiot Dan Bespris at Dan Bespris on Twitter, D-A-N-B-E-S-B-R-I-S. Hello. Welcome to our Friday slash weekend edition of Fantasy NBA Today. This is a hoop ball presentation. You guys know the drill by now. Check out our partners at mybookie.ag. Make sure to hit me up before you open up an account with promo code HoopBall. I want to get you these damn prizes. People keep telling me they've opened them up and they've been doing stuff. I'm like, what the hell, man? I'm trying to give you something. Got to tell me beforehand, not after. And Manscaped.com. Actually wearing their uh, testicular cancer awareness t-shirt today. Says, we save balls. It's good. They're good company, man. I know they, they make a lot of jokes. A lot of balls jokes. And we generally don't do that on the podcast in terms of the advertising side of things. But they just make a great product. They're a good company. They work with good companies. Manscaped.com. Promo code over there is HoopBall20. You get 20% off and free shipping on your order. (laughs) So anyways, what do you guys think we're doing today? Well, I've been telling you guys the preview of, of today's show. And now, if you don't know, now you know. Today's show, we'll be going over series prices for NBA games. We also do have one game tonight, the uh, Mavs and the Clippers, a series that could finish up. Dallas leads that one three games to two. And then the second round opens up on Saturday. Milwaukee and Brooklyn Sunday would potentially be a Dallas Clippers game seven if necessary. Atlanta-Philadelphia also opens on Sunday. Denver-Phoenix opens up on Monday. While uh, Utah waits to find out who they will be playing from that Dallas Clippers game, I imagine that'll probably open up early next week as well, depending on how long the uh, the Dallas Clippers series goes. So we don't have all the information that we need. We don't have the Dallas Clippers winner yet. So we only have three of the four second-round series prices. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk about the individual game happening tonight, Dallas and LAC. Clippers, by the way, two-and-a-half-point road favorite. This series finally starting to catch on with how the home teams have been faring so far. Total of 216-and-a-half. The last ball game, which occurred on Wednesday, Dallas won that 105-100. to You're starting to see the pace impact the outcome of the ball game. This series, this, these games between the Clippers and the Mavs have actually all been played at a relatively... 
repeatedly kind of low pace. Dallas scored 105 in that game. They shot just 42% from the field. Very good at the free throw line in their 19 attempts. And only eight turnovers in the game. Uh, But by sort of rudimentary pace stuff, they probably should have scored about 106, 107 points. And on the Clippers' side... Also, only 80 shots. They were okay at the free throw line. Not bad. 80% on 25 attempts. That'll do. 12 turnovers. Pretty average in that regard. So they should have been about 104, 105. So this game went under the expected total by five or six, but even that would have been under the posted total by five or six. So it went under by a dozen. So this game tonight, they brought the number down on on the posted total by about one, one and a half. The question is, do we think... The Clippers, forget the Mavericks, because I think L.A. Is, has done a pretty good job of sorting out the non-Luka Mavericks at this point. The Clippers need to be much better on offense. I I wondered about this on an earlier podcast this week, whether Kawhi Leonard, as these series wear on, and he needs two or three days off in between them, Because he's playing 40, 41, 42 minutes a game. I do wonder if that leg of his just gets progressively worse as he rolls up these giant minute totals, no matter how much care they take of him during the regular season, wherever he is. Toronto, here, whatever. Here being L.A., that's where I live, so I probably should have been more clear on that front. Paul George has been good. Those two guys haven't gotten much help. But it does feel like they're kind of due because, again, Dallas is not really a, 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 a finisher in terms of defense. And yet, the Clippers haven't been that great on offense last couple of ball games after both teams scored a bunch earlier in this series. So the question now is, because this one's going to stay in the half court for the most part, the question is, can these two teams force some turnovers? Can they make some defensive adjustments? By the end of a long series, offensive adjustments are kind of the only thing left But then also fatigue tends to kind of overwhelm the offensive stuff. I don't think Luka takes 37 shots again in this one. I don't, if he's really dealing with that neck shoulder thing, it probably does bite him a little bit at some point. And we'll see how the Clippers play him. Seems like they're just saying, Luka, you're going to have to beat us yourself and you're going to be winded by the end of the ballgame, which if it's close, it'll slow down again. And so when I look at it from that perspective, do I trust the Clippers to win a close ball game? I actually don't, because their late game execution has not been good this year. But two sixteen and a half still actually feels a tiny bit too high to me. Not by much, very small amount of wiggle room there, but a little bit. And now let's talk a little about some of the series prices as we get into the second round. And this is kind of what I wanted to do, in total here on this Friday show. But the uh, Mavs and Clips haven't been kind enough to finish up their series yet. In no particular order, really the order, I'm just reading the odds off this webpage. The Bucks and the Nets, this should be, this is going to be an awesome series. These are great games during the regular season too. Brooklyn, the favorite, minus 200. That's a big number for the Nets. Yeah, they looked real good against the Celtics in the first round, but I think a lot of teams might have looked good against the Celtics in the first round, and I'm not fully convinced that Milwaukee isn't the more complete team here between these two clubs. One of the things that jumped out to me as I handicapped this one, and I I could be dead wrong, which is, I guess, that sort of goes without saying when you're talking about gambling on stuff. Um, 
First of all, the total is set at 239 and a half for the first game of this series. Brooklyn's favored by four. The things that jump out at me, really, when you when you kind of eyeball multiple recent games for the two teams, is that Boston didn't have almost any real offensive weapons beyond Jason Tatum in that series. They got a little bit out of Evan Fournier, and that was it. And Tatum did enough in one game to get Boston a win, but overall, they just got swarmed. This is a massive upgrade in competition for Brooklyn in round two. Now, don't get me wrong. I think the Nets are going to have a a strong offensive series. There's just kind of no way to contain all of them, and they're going to have their big three healthy against the Bucs, who really weren't all there when these two teams played during the regular season. So it's going to be a dogfight. But a couple of things. First of all, Giannis, he's a defensive monster. I don't know if they put him on Kevin Durant. Maybe that's where you stick him just because he's got the best shot to slow him down. Or maybe you put him on someone like a Harden and just say, look, James, you're going to you're gonna have to beat us from outside. I don't think they'll put him on Harden because it risks foul trouble too much. But Giannis is going to be on one of these dudes. And not that he's going to be able to stop any of these guys. They're incredible, but... Think about what Boston had going on the other side. Was it Tatum on Durant for stretches of that one? I don't even know who it was. Was Evan Fournier trying to guard James Harden? Joe Harris? One of those guys was on Joe Harris, I guess. Marcus Smart couldn't slow down Kyrie. No, he can. So, whatever. But uh, at this point now, we're talking about, first, Drew Holiday. Massive upgrade. Massive upgrade. Chris Middleton over Evan Fournier, massive upgrade. Giannis over Jason Tatum, upgrade. Different kind of ball player offensively, but look, significant upgrade. And then I know it's funny to say this because I listed off all those guys, but I think maybe the biggest difference as they look at the Bucks is that Milwaukee has any rim protection, any at all. Actually, quite a bit between Brooke Lopez, Giannis, the Bucks can actually defend where Boston couldn't this year. Boston wasn't defending anybody. I want to stress again, the Nets are an unbelievable offensive team. They're going to score against everyone, but it's going to be harder against the Bucks. They're going to have a game plan. And, and maybe this is even more important than the defensive side for uh, the Nets opponents, or I should say the Nets offensive side, is the Nets defensive side. You could argue they did a decent job against Boston defensively, but I would also argue that Boston just isn't that good when they're down sometimes Kemba, and I don't know what the hell's left in that dude's tank. He had stretches this year where he was pretty good, but Jalen Brown was out. They didn't really have any centers they wanted to use. Tristan Thompson wasn't supposed to be the starting center on this team. He's not a rim protector, even if he got a block here and there. He's a rebounder. Boston was badly outclassed. Now, meanwhile, Milwaukee dispatched of Miami in four games, and what I, what I liked out of that series was that the Bucks looked laser-focused. That's not going to be enough to make this series easy, not by any stretch of the imagination, but I think Milwaukee actually advances past Brooklyn. I think we've anointed the Nets the NBA champions because offensively they are so unbelievable, but this is the series where they 
start to get tested on the other side because the Bucks have so many weapons. I think even more than Philly, even when Philly is healthy because they're just such a different slow-it-down, grind-it-out team. I think that's actually a pretty good matchup for Brooklyn because they have these unbelievable half-court offensive options where I don't know that the Nets can slow down teams in transition. They don't have rim protection either. Blake Griffin is the starting center on that team. Nick Claxton played 12 minutes off the bench. DeAndre Jordan didn't even get in the ballgame, although maybe he plays a bit against Brooke Lopez. There's going to be a lot of drop coverage from Brolo. So Bucks are going to be daring these guys to take three-pointers and long twos. They're going to try to prevent the easiest of the buckets, and the Nets are still going to score a lot. Bucks look better than Brooklyn during the regular season. And if Milwaukee's defense gets ratcheted up here in the playoffs... By the way, another note on the uh, regular season matchups between these two teams. Not, not for nothing... Neither one of these clubs liked to play their superstars a ton of minutes. But one of the things that we've always kind of killed the Bucks for lately is that they've been extremely reluctant to play their superstars big minutes. These two teams played, I believe it was May 2nd and May 4th. Might be getting those dates off by one or two. Uh, Bucks played their superstars about 36 minutes apiece. Kevin Durant actually played 40 minutes in one of those games when they lost. Bucks won that one despite shooting 45%. It's actually not entirely clear how the hell that happened. Uh, a lot of it was rebounding. Beastly rebounders. Dante DiVincenzo actually had 15 boards in one of those games, and he's out. So, this all loops back around to our discussion on the series price. Brooklyn's up to minus 200. Bucks are up to plus 170. I think this is a pretty good time to grab Milwaukee. I think they've got a decent shot to win the opener in Brooklyn. Bucks have had plenty of time to game plan. Not that Brooklyn hasn't. I just don't believe that Brooklyn defensively can game plan for the Bucks. What are they going to do? Pack the paint? What difference does it make? All those guys are freaking 6'7" except for KD. And is he going to be their rim protection? You want KD picking up five fouls, trying to stop Giannis freight train downhill? I don't know, man. I do think Brooklyn wants it to be a very high-scoring game. I think Milwaukee would be totally fine. Uh, actually, I would argue both teams kind of do. Bucks want more transition. Nets probably would prefer to use their superstars, slow it down a little bit, not give Giannis the opportunity to get out and run. But I also don't know that Brooklyn has the discipline to slow the game down all that much. With this first game in Brooklyn, and I don't really know what defense these teams are going to throw at each other, but I am I'm feel pretty comfortable saying that offensively they're going to be throwing their fastball. Uh, I'd look at Milwaukee in this one, and I think it's going to be pretty damn high scoring as well. So I think I kind of like the over. Man, that's a lot of points, though. Might leave the total alone. Uh, but I think Milwaukee wins this series. If you think Brooklyn wins, wins the series, you probably wait and hope they lose one of these first two games at home. Maybe the series price comes down a little bit. 
The Hawks and the 76ers. I would not touch this series price with a 10-foot pole because we don't know what's going on with Joel Embiid. Right now, the Sixers are minus 175, Hawks at plus 155. The reason you're getting that very cheap rate on the Sixers is because I think there's an expectation that Embiid is going to miss a little bit of time. And if he does miss time, Hawks are not a team that Philly's going to be able to sneak past. They're going to need Joel to get him through this one because Atlanta's good. Defensively, more than anything, they've really stepped it up. And without Embiid, the Sixers don't have those guys, or that guy, really, that teams can't guard. They'll move the ball, they'll space it, they'll shoot some threes, they've got some decent options, but he's the motor in a half-court offense on that team. So if Embiid is out, uh, look for the Hawks' defense to be really powerful. But I don't know that you can make the wager this far out in advance. You could try. Philly's favored by only two and a half at home. That's almost definitely a line built on no Joel Embiid. So if that's the case, then maybe you take the Hawks at plus two and a half, and then if Embiid comes back, sorry, the other way around, maybe you take Philly at minus two and a half, and if Embiid decides to play, you could take the Hawks at like plus six. That's probably the only way I would touch the side in this ballgame. On the total, I think you basically just fade whatever people would think happens with Embiid. Remember in that last game against Washington, you knew the pace was going to be higher with no Embiid in there, so we played the over, and it worked out great. And you could probably do something similar here, although at 220 and a half, I do wonder also if perhaps Atlanta's defense is being a bit underrated. We know Philly's defense is actually pretty good when they're focused in there, but they do a lot of their damage by slowing the ballgame down. And finally, the Nuggets and the Phoenix Suns. These were great regular season games. They'll be awesome in the playoffs as well. Phoenix uh, opened at minus 130 and jumped up to minus 200. I don't know that 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 feels wrong, Uh, but it also feels, I shouldn't say it feels wrong. It actually feels right. Minus 130 seemed insane for Phoenix. What I I mean is wrong is that it doesn't feel like that was actually the opening line. Something seems wrong there. Like, it feels like there's a misprint. But in any event, Suns, uh, are a uh, minus 200, so that's a 1-2 to two ratio. Denver, the underdog, at plus 165. Uh, Suns are, are pretty lasered in right now. Jokic is going to do his thing, uh, but Denver's going to have... Denver's not going to get past this one. I, I, I didn't think they were going to get past Portland, but I also thought the Blazers would have any kind of defensive intensity, and they had none. Zippo. They played no defense, where the Suns are actually quite good on the defensive side of the ball. They're going to score because Denver also defensively wasn't very good. They did enough, but Dame went nuts a few times. It's going to be a good series. I just, to me, if Chris Paul is even, if is even inching up on healthy, and I still don't know that he is, so I probably wouldn't bet on this one, but I do think the Suns win the series. And that first game on Monday, Phoenix is a four-point favorite at home. Uh, I would actually consider Denver in that one while the Suns are trying to sort of figure out what the Nuggets want to run. And I think Phoenix gets better as this series goes on just because they have they have the personnel to make adjustments that I don't know that Denver has. Denver just kept doing the same damn stuff and Portland couldn't figure out any way to stop it. That is a, Portland should be a little bit embarrassed at that level of effort. Not that Denver's not a really good basketball team. Even without Jamal Murray, they're still pretty damn good. But Portland needed to win that series. Jamal Murray was so critical for Denver's playoff success. He was the one making the tough shots. He was the one forcing the defense to honor 
him and Jokic, two options that created all that gravity for other guys to get free. Denver only has one of those guys right now, and Portland still couldn't figure it out. So, fie on you, Portland. You messed this one up. I also want to talk about one, one fantasy lesson learned from this year before we pivot next week into a... I still haven't come up with a good name for it, but how did Yahoo do really is is kind of the, the main thing. But it's it's a strategy builder that we use to determine how we can navigate drafts for the upcoming season, whether or not Yahoo is getting more accurate, less accurate, where no man's land creeps in. But until we get into that, before then, today, I wanted to focus on a lesson that we can take away from this season, I think probably applies relatively well to other seasons as well. And that is how to draft beyond the ninth and 10th round. There's an easy answer to that question that covers everything in an umbrella sense. And that easy answer is you take whoever you want. You are not beholden to Yahoo's pre-ranks once you get to that point, not by a long shot. Usually that moment occurs in the 60s or 70s so we're well past that we're at like pick 107 i don't know it doesn't matter pick 100 just call it 100 for a nice round number which is the middle of the ninth round question mark but what i want to focus on on today's podcast is who are the guys who were pre-ranked basically the adp so we're going mostly on adp at this point Who are the guys who had an ADP over 100 who finished well inside the top 100 on a per-game or totals basis? And I want to do both. We're not going to break down each individual name, but I want to cover both because there's sort of different reasons to look at both sides of it. Okay, let's start on the per-game side. And I'm going to go through from like 100 to 200, more or less, because guys outside of the top 200 generally don't really get drafted in a 12-team league on pre-ranks. There there are some guys that are way down the board, and I guess we can flash through them pretty quick. But Okay, so here are the guys who were drafted outside the top 100 who finished inside of it on a per-game basis. Karis LeVert, Evan Fournier, Norman Powell, uh, LaMelo Ball, who I think actually moved up the board late. P.J. Washington, Nerlens Noel, Jared Allen, Larry Nance Jr. The list goes on. Chris Boucher, DeLon Wright, Miles Bridges, Joe Harris, barely made it inside the top 100. Malik Beasley, Terry Rozier, who might have been the draft pick of the year. Tyrese Halliburton, we'll go a little bit farther. Harrison Barnes, Danny Green, I know, your socks, you can put your socks back on, even though they got blown off. The Time Lord, Robert Williams. And that's probably about as far as we need to go. There's like one or two other names in there. I think Ennis Cantor was outside the top 200. Kelly Olynyk, Slow-Mo, those guys were all floating around in there. What can we take away from some of this? Well, Kelly Olynyk, it was a trade. Slow-Mo, he came out of nowhere. Ennis Cantor, it was an injury. I mean, so there's pretty clear stuff here. The Time Lord just played his way into minutes. Danny Green, you know, that's an old man squad kind of guy. Harrison Barnes, 
fixed his fantasy game. Tyrese Halliburton was a rookie. Terry Rozier is one I want to focus on. Chris Boucher is one I want to focus on. Delon Wright is one I want to focus on. And if we go back even earlier, and I don't like I don't want to talk about the guys that are like 100 or 101 because they kind of fall into a category of dudes that are going to get drafted around there and it's not so much of a no man's land kind of thing. Um, and then Larry Nance Jr. is probably another one. P.J. Washington. We can leave out LaMelo Ball. We can leave out Norman Powell. Fournier and Levert. Those guys don't need to sleep slip into our discussion because those guys were not really ADP 100 or higher. They tended to trend upward near draft time. But the names that I just picked out, what is it about them that allowed them to become this seventh round or better, for most of those guys, kind of asset? How could we have seen this coming? And how can we see it coming in future years? Well, let's take it on a case-by-case basis. Starting in no particular order, um, Nerland's Noel, who I don't know if we mentioned here, he was one that we liked anyway. He was someone that we figured was going to be... By the way, he ended up going in like the 80s or 90s in a lot of spots because of that late surge But he was someone that we knew was good in only 20 minutes a game. And behind Mitchell Robinson and playing for Tom Thibodeau, you figured there would probably be games where either Robinson might get hurt for a game or two here and there, or maybe Nerlens just takes over the job. Remember, he started a couple of games during the preseason, and that kind of blew up his ADP a little bit. Jared Allen, now he got traded, so we can throw him out. Larry Nance Jr., who only played 35 games this year, and so per games versus totals is a pretty different discussion. And he's a guy, I don't know if I can draft Larry Nance anymore, as much as I love his his fantasy game. This was an easy one. If he was healthy, this would, would have been a layup, but he missed half the damn season. But from a per-game standpoint, this was a gimme. Because we knew he was going to get minutes on that team, and we already knew that his fantasy game was built to be a value in 25 minutes or more. Chris Boucher in Toronto. We knew he had an amazing fantasy stat set. DeLon Wright, amazing fantasy stat set. Terry Rozier, not as an amazing a fantasy stat set. And we all, I think, kind of panicked a little bit because Gordon Hayward showed up. Tyrese Halliburton is a rookie. I just didn't know anything about him, so that was one that we're never going to get into the future. And then Harrison Barnes was none. There's no way I was going to trust him to fix his fantasy deficiencies. But the names on that list that I think we could look back at and say, hey, this is something we need to be looking for as we size up our angles for next year are who are the guys getting drafted beyond 110, beyond 120, who have the fastest route to fantasy value, meaning the guys who only need 22 minutes to get inside the top 100. This is when you're looking for per game fantasy value. Not totals, because it might not be every night. It might be someone's backup sometimes. Chris Boucher wasn't the starter at the beginning of the year. He wasn't the starter for most of the season They rotated through Pascal Siakam and Aaron Baines at starting center, and then Kem Birch late in the year as well. 
That's one. One thing you look for is a guy who can get it done in 24 minutes, who could be a top 100 player in 24 minutes, because then you're talking about upside. DeLon Wright, same kind of thing. I shied away from DeLon Wright uh, in some of my drafts, which was sort of a weird move because I was looking at him like, this guy has a great fantasy stat set. Why am I panicking? I panicked because it wasn't clear he was going to be the starter. It wasn't clear he was going to have a feature role on that Detroit team. And he didn't to start the year. But he's still a guy you sit on because if the minutes show up, then he's, he's an easy cash. Nerland's Noel. Same argument, and yet I was all in on Nerland's, and I was petrified of DeLon Wright this year for some unknown reason. So that's phase one of drafting outside the top 110. And you can pick these guys sooner if you really want to. Pick them at the edge of the top 100, should you so desire. Although a lot of times some ADP guys in the 80s and 90s slip a little bit, so it's, it's a different discussion. The other thing you look for, in addition to guys that can put up big fantasy numbers in 24 minutes, are... Guys who you expect to have a much higher minute count than the site's projection. Norman Powell was one of those guys for me. I think he was projected to play like 26 or 27 minutes. He ended up playing 32 minutes a game this year. Uh, Slow start, again, because everybody was healthy in Tampa for the first four weeks. But then he was stepped into the starting lineup, and someone was hurt every single day until the trade deadline when he got moved to Portland, and then he was the starter the rest of the way. So, easy enough. So, Norman Powell's a really good example of that. Terry Rozier, actually, is a really good example of that, as there was an expectation that his role was going to take a hit, but this is a guy getting drafted in the 120s, 130s, who still had an opportunity to play 30-plus minutes a game and was, like, top 80-ish in something near that mark last year. So, that's a pretty big drop-off. Chris Boucher, similar argument there on the, he's more on the the upside side of things. Now, we don't have next year's pre-ranks, we don't have next year's ADPs, but what I want to mark down today, June the 4th, 2021, we'll go back to this lesson when we get next year's pre-ranks from the big sites, and we're going to look at it, we're going to say, okay, here's the guys ranked outside the top 100. Let's take a marker And let's highlight the guys who have the best per-minute production with, admittedly, you're going to need an actual path to some kind of value for these guys. And then we'll also highlight the guys, oh, look, they're projected to play fewer minutes than they should be. Just for argument's sake, what would that have looked like this year if you had gone through some of those things uh, from like 125 to 150 range? You'd look at these names, you say Jeff Teague, No, there's no per minute anything there. There's no uh, massive minute played thing there, so you just jump over it. Alfred Payton? No. I mean, that dude needed to play like 35 minutes a game to get there. Killian Hayes? We didn't know anything about him, so we'll jump over that. Rui Hachimura? He was someone you might have looked at because you figured he was probably going to play a ton of minutes, but there's no per minute ability. R.J. Barrett? Bad stat set. Chris Boucher, great stat set. Delon Wright, great stat set. Miles Bridges, I wouldn't have gone that way. In fact, his minutes went up big time when everybody got hurt on that team. So, okay, fine. That's one that would have been a midseason pickup. 
Paul Millsap. I drafted him in one league, and I look back at it like, what are you even doing here, Dan? This dude doesn't have fantasy game anymore, so he would have needed to play like 32 minutes a night. Darius Garland is one we probably should have been targeting a little bit more. He didn't turn out to be that great this year, but his stat set is okay. Not great, but we knew his minutes were going to be big. Anthony Edwards is another one that was sort of a ramp-up kind of guy. Boogie, what are we thinking? Decent fantasy stats up, but no chance he was going to play enough minutes. Joe Ingles. That one's... I mean, he shot the ball so well for the first, like, four months of this season. But Obi Toppin, no. Malik Beasley, yes, big minutes. Jakob Pertl, he was a no at the beginning of the year because LaMarcus Aldridge was there, so I don't think we can... That's a midseason pickup kind of guy. Terry Rozier, Marquise Chris... Terrence Ross, who I actually did draft in a number of spots, and he he gave up partway through the year, but he was actually one that I would probably do again because I thought that his usage and or minutes and or stat set really was going to be a little better this year, but he certainly isn't a guy that can get it done in 25 minutes. He needed more than that. Kevin Porter Jr., now nah, he was buried at the beginning of the year. Tim Hardaway Jr., not doesn't have the stat set. So And then like Jay Crowder was in there as well. It's a guy, these, these, there's no upside for these guys, and there isn't massive minutes for these guys either. So as you list, it, it seems so obvious now looking back. So that's why I want us to do something similar for next year, to go through these types of names and say, well, is, there, is this a guy who can get there in 24 minutes a game, or is this a guy who might play 32 minutes a game or more on the season? And if the answer to both of those questions is no, you just wipe them right off your board. And do this for picks like 100 through 250, and suddenly 150 names becomes like 20. How many names did I just say yes to out of those 25? Four? Five? Six or seven at most? Joe Harris probably should have been on that list because of a lot of minutes played, but I didn't think there was going to be a ton of I didn't think there was going to be a ton of usage there. He actually ended up doing better this season, probably because someone was always hurt. Whatever, he takes what he gets. And now let's quickly look at this from the other side, which is totals. And this is a very different bird, and it's much more suited for head-to-head because you can't make up those missing games. Who are the guys between 100 and 250 and head-to-head that dramatically outperformed their rank position? Norman Powell is still on that list. Hey, played well and durable. He was number 36, by the way, by totals this year. P.J. Washington. Dante DiVincenzo was uh, actually pretty good. He missed the very end of this. A couple games in there, and then he got hurt in the playoffs. Montrez Harrell. What? Nerlens, Duncan Robinson, Jarrett Allen, Kevin Herter. You're noticing it's a pretty different list of names here. Chris Boucher, DeLon Wright, Miles Bridges, Joe Harris, they all made the list on both sides. Anthony Edwards, Joe Ingles, Jakob Pertl, Terry Rozier, who was number 15 by totals this season. Tim Hardaway Jr. actually made the list here. Tyrese Halliburton on there as well. Ivica Zubats played all 72 games this year. Harrison Barnes, repeat offender. Danny Green inside the top 50 by totals in 9-cat on the season. Time Lord, Mello was number 97. That one blew me away. Jordan Clarkson was number 65. Justin Holiday, 66. 
Thad Young, 74. Hey, where the hell did Thad Young go on that last list? Did he fall right outside the top 100 because of that weird end of the season? Must have, I guess. Uh, Matisse Thibel was number 94? I mean, this is crazy. Royce O'Neal, 80. Nick Batum, 71. Ennis Cantor, 52. Slow-mo, 30. Olenek, 27. Bobby Portis, 82. The thing you're you're likely noticing because it jumps out at you and slaps you in the face is that this list is different because this list is just telling you who the most durable guys are in this range. So if you're in head-to-head, and I believe you probably should be streaming the last two roster slots during the regular season after all of our discussion about getting a first or second seed. So we're now talking about, if you're in a head-to-head league with say, four bench slots. So it's really rounds 11 and 12 is what we're talking about right now. Rounds 11 and 12, you should be hunting a safe, durable player who's going to log 30-plus minutes a game. It's the it's the total opposite side. Because, yeah, you might have landed on Chris Boucher if you went head-to-head and, and you went value hunting and he was number 43, but guess what? He was number 43 in 60 ball games. Who did I just tell you? Danny Green was like number 49. Danny Green was a much less risky play there in head-to-head. Miles Bridges, Joe Harris. I mean, Joe Harris at 59. Joe Ingles at 76. Some of these names I just mentioned to you guys. The thread among a lot of the names I just mentioned... You could throw Boyan Bogdanovich in there, but he was drafted a bit earlier. The thread is that these guys played a lot of games and a lot of minutes. There aren't that many players on this list who are the low-minute, big upside kinds. Nerlens Noel is one of them. Uh, Chris Boucher, I guess you could call another 24-ish minutes a game, just like Nerlens. But most of the guys that I just read off to you that were inside the top 75 or 80 on a totals basis were guys playing 27, 28, 29, 30, 31, 32 minutes a game. In fact, there really aren't that many guys. Let's look at it from the flip side of the coin. Of the names I just read off to you, if I just sorted by minutes per game in that range, you'd find a whole heck of a lot of guys that made the cut. Like the top minutes per game dudes ranked in the uh, 100 to 125 range are uh, Josh Richardson, who is number 119. Larry Nance Jr. was number 190 because he missed half the season. Duncan Robinson, 78. Schroeder, 115. P.J. Washington, 63. Powell, 36. Boyan, uh, 89. Fournier was 153, but he also missed 30 games this year. And you can do the same thing with every chunk of 25, because that's what I'm looking at here on Yahoo. Malik Beasley, uh, but the suspension and the injury blew it up, but he was at 33 minutes a game. R.J. Barrett, 35 minutes a game. That's not a guy we targeted anywhere, but he played 72 games and 35 minutes a night, so he finished at 111. Darius Garland, 129 despite missing 18 games. Anthony Edwards, 67, 32 minutes a night. This is a very repeatable formula for head-to-head. As much as I'd love to say, take a swing in head-to-head, and maybe we say it this way. You know what? Let's change the strategy just a little bit. Rounds one through 
nine, 10, whatever, you do your normal draft process. You take your guys that you are very confident in having a good year and beating their ADP. Round 10, 11, 12, that range, that's where you take your flyers. That's where you go after a guy with massive upside, like an Erlens Noel or a Chris Boucher, and you say, you know what, if this hits, it's a game changer. And then in your last two rounds, where you're like, I'm probably dropping these guys anyway, that's where you take your hyper-durables, like your Danny Greens, your Harrison Barneses, your Evitza Zubases, and you just say, you know what, I've got these guys now, so that if my big swings in rounds 10, 11, 12 don't hit, I can drop those guys. I can stream those guys. Make no mistake, we are going to go back when we get these pre-ranks for next year after free agency, and we are going to outline it on both sides, roto and head-to-head, per game and totals, and just start crossing off names. On the roto side, if there's no upside and there's no big roll, cross them off. On the head-to-head side, if you think they're going to play a ton of minutes, you highlight them. If you think they've got huge upside, you highlight them in a different color. I can't wait to come back to this one. June the 4th, guys. Don't let me forget. That's when we talked about it. Uh, That'll do it for our Friday weekend show. I am Dan Bespers for Fantasy NBA Today. Thank you, everybody, for continuing to listen here during the offseason. That's how we keep our corporate sponsors and how we keep growing here at The Hoob. You can follow me on Twitter at Dan Bespers. Back around on Monday. We'll dive in. How did Yahoo do? For real. And we'll compare it, by the way, to previous seasons. We've got so much data to go over. Strap on your visors, everybody. We're going accounting next week. So long. This has been a Hoop Bowl presentation.